Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine for July 30th, 2023. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Welcome, as always, Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome, Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. All right, a good, exciting show tonight. We're going to have a brand-new guest on the show, really talking about a brand-new area for us. Um, Early Ping is going to come on the show um, and I'll tell you when, when she comes on, I'll really describe, you know, what a small world is. Met early down in um, Puerto Rico, of all places, but she's from the New England area, both raised and then went to college and different things. So she's going to tell us about Maine, New Hampshire, which she, one she was born and raised in, one she went to college in. And then um, we'll talk about Puerto Rico. We'll talk about some other things with Early, but really a, a very knowledgeable guest. Um, I think just from the conversations I had when I met her, um, and coincidentally, the reason that the show came up is we had just had her professor, Dr. Charles Wheeland, on the show, and it just came up, and she's like, oh, yeah, I've this, that, and the other, you know, known all about him, so very coincidental, but um, that's going to come for about 20 minutes, and until then, we're going to talk about some other political issues and one that may have not been the biggest issue, but really is kind of a defining issue of more than anything where the Republican Party is at, is just this past week, um, you know, and it's been coming out for a while now, information about Florida's curriculum changes. And in defending those um, curriculum changes to some AP classes and whatnot, Ron DeSantis defended slavery by saying that there were things about slavery that were beneficial to the slaves. And he pointed out that, you know, someone could get trained as a blacksmith, and then they would know how to be a blacksmith um, and used it as a defense of slavery. Well, shockingly, people found that offensive, Um, and not just Democrats, um, but Republicans felt that offensive, and we'll get into that in a minute, but let's just kind of take the comments that started it all off and discuss that. Catherine, I'm sure you heard the comments when he said it about, you know, this pseudo-defense of slavery. Um, What were your thoughts on that? It's just offensive to I mean, it's almost unbelievable that someone would say that. I mean, I think um, many people, uh, I think, I'd like to think most people, think of slavery as as the United States' original sin, right? We had slavery much longer than many other developed countries. We, uh, you know, it it was just, it's just shocking that, Number one, that you would believe that. Number two, that you would say it. And number three, that it would 
uh, be part of a curriculum, a, a, a school curriculum. I mean, the whole thing is like bizarre world to you use those kinds of, that kind of defense for something that is indefensible. Yeah. Now, Tim, you were born and raised in the South like I was, and we've kind of, I'm sure, both heard this nonsense uh, or some version of it for a long time where, oh, there were some slave owners that were better than others and some that were worse than others. And the fact that the ones that were not as bad is somehow any kind of defense is just just total nonsense. Um, I see this kind of thing is coming out of that talk, and that's really something I hadn't heard in many years. I think in probably maybe two decades now, a lot of that had gone by the wayside. That was kind of more like you'd hear that in decades past. But this seems to be a, a reemerging of that kind of train of thought. What do you think? Yeah, uh, you know, I, I, I distinctly recall when people would say stuff like, that and nobody would bat an eye because it was the accepted norm in conversation you know 60 years ago down here i'm i'm sorry to say but it's the truth is what happened uh i never thought that we would see this at the government level again in any of these states down here this is part you know of that anti-woke legislation that big package and DeSantis has, of course, made it worse by defending the curriculum and and actually saying that anybody that criticizes it is just cherry-picking one or two things out of it, <laughs> which, of course, uh, that that that's not working because, uh, I mean, he, he's getting hammered uh, by everybody, as we will get in. Yes. Now, listen, you talk about everybody. Um, notably, and I'm going to get to the biggest name fourth, but and probably not going chronological order, but um, Representative Byron Dor- uh, Donald, who's from Florida, criticized Ron DeSantis, which the fact that he is a Republican lawmaker from Florida um, probably gives it the most credence since it's his state and he's African-American. Um, a freshman representative from Michigan – John, I want to say Jennings. I may get that name wrong. Correct me if y'all know Representative um, John from Michigan's exact last name. And then another representative from Texas who's also African-American criticized him. But the one that probably got the most attention was fellow presidential candidate, uh, the only African-American Republican in the Senate, Tim Scott, um, criticized him. Um, Tim, after four Republican African-American lawmakers, one in his very home state, uh, all criticized Ron DeSantis. Were you kind of surprised he maybe didn't do a mea culpa and just say, yeah, I just wouldn't – I really shouldn't have spoken this way on this topic. You know, I'll defer to the that's, people who actually are ancestors of slaves on this one. That, that, that's, that's not his M.O., as you know, guys. Uh, Ron DeSantis don't backtrack and say, gee, maybe I made a mistake. Ron DeSantis doubles down, right. uh, you know, like, like Trump does. And, 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 you know, like I said, he tried to turn this around and said that critics are cherry-picking when they picked out 
uh, one one line that said that slaves develop skills which in some instances could be applied for their personal benefit. And so <laughs> he he good or bad, he he's not gonna change at this point. Uh it doesn't seem to be doing him any good no matter what he does. Uh, but uh th- th- this goes to a bigger issue. Um of, of the fact that uh, the Republican Party lately has a really terrible record with African Americans, it's not going to help, is it, David? Uh, no, I don't see this as a recruitment tool. Um, Catherine, <laughs> um, these these four individuals, and I didn't even mention Will Hurd because I think he made news yeah. elsewhere, but I'm sure he disagrees with this too. Um, yeah, and but but. Uh, do you are you kind of surprised that Ron DeSantis in this one case, you know, maybe didn't? I, I won't even say apologize because I agree with Tim. It's not in his DNA. We've heard the stories about thigh food and how um, he doesn't like to be corrected. But this was pretty egregious, wasn't it? It was egregious, but I agree 100 percent with him. That is not his style. He's not gonna. He's not gonna. He's like he said. He's gonna double down. And, you know, keep talking about it. And I think that's yeah. one of the reasons that, you know, he's not this in particular, but that behavior is one of the reasons that he's not, he's, his uh, polling is going down because he's just a bully. Yeah, yeah, I, he definitely is. Well, and, and it's, it's but he's, he, for him, he's the B level bully because. The A level bully's still running, and he's on the scene. You know, uh, Tim. You know, David. We we've talked about this guy a lot, and and we've scratched our heads and wondered, what is he doing? Where is he going? Where, where does he even stand? And and boy, he wants to to take Donald Trump's slot. He wants Donald Trump's voters. But there's only one guy in, in the Republican Party that can do what Donald Trump does and flourish, and that's Donald Trump. It's not going to be Ron DeSantis. He's not going to get anywhere by being trump light and running against Trump and trying to get Trump's voters to vote for him. It's not going to work. And, uh, you, you know, I'm sure we'll get more into exactly how bad off he is, but but the man the man flails around. But uh, don't don't expect any apologies now. Out of this just just don't. No, it's not his brand, and I don't know that it would help him. Um, I, I really think it's too far gone anyway. But now let's get into another part of this, and I'll go ahead and say this: this person shares the last name when we say spelling, but I haven't met him at any of the family reunions. Uh, pollster, Republican pollster Dan McLaughlin, after Tim Scott um, criticized Ron DeSantis, and rightfully so that Tim Scott did this, um, Dan McLaughlin said this probably – the critici- criticizing of DeSantis' statements will actually hurt Tim Scott in the Republican primary for president. Catherine, how sad a state of affairs is that, that someone – Speaking what 99.9% of the people should know is the truth, I mean really 100 should, but how should that be something that hurts you when you speak the truth about something you know far more intimately 
than Ron DeSantis does. Well, I'd be curious to see why he said that. Like, what about this criticism um, hurts him? Was it just criticizing the policy, or was it the idea of criticizing another candidate? I think what it was is it's really more of a statement on the mentality of the Republican base. Uh, I mean, well, you know, I, I think that was really – I mean, he didn't say it as much because he's not quite to the Frank, Frank Luntz level where he's begun to criticize the Republican base very openly. But I think it was very much saying, you know, the base probably, you know, still thinks these kind of ideas are, are – I mean, you know, enough of them um, are popular. Well, that's really a sad state of affairs. Yeah. Okay, David, I got to ask. Tim, go, jump in. If, 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 if the base thinks that, were they going to vote for Tim Scott anyway? That's a good point. Probably not the base that would anyway. I, I, it's, it's such a tricky deal because obviously – you know that there's pieces, different pieces of any, you know, the Democratic base as well. But there's different pieces of Republican base, and if if there's one candidate that really gets all of the really people that just want to go back to 1950, um, then you can split up the rest. And it's just it's just such a um, sad state of affairs. Like, you, you know, I think there was somebody. Um, mentioned something that was said in the 90s about the Republican Party and race, and I thought to myself, the Republican Party was far better on racial issues in the mid-1990s than they are in 2023. And, and that's mm-hmm. real. I mean, they've taken a step backward in the past 25 to 30 years on issues of race. I mean, I would say the George W. Bush presidency was far more open and progressive than uh, Trump's second or DeSantis presidency would be. We could probably name a few other candidates would be. I mean, that's uh, that's really – you really just hate to see a country and a party in the country go backward in that way. I mean, Catherine, would you disagree with that? Um, I no, I don't disagree with that. I think it's gotten worse. I, I don't. I don't know that it's gotten worse. I don't know if it's twenty years. I think it's more like six or seven years since Trump. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the Mitt Romney well, uh, campaign was Trump. far better than the, the Mitt Romney campaign was far better than the Donald Trump campaign, and that's been the last two, and most likely the last three campaigns. Um, yeah. Tim, now let's put this question back to you. How do you see this impacting, you know, Tim Scott and really any of these other African-American legislators because they will have to run in a Republican primary uh, for re-election? Uh, Tim Scott will do very well in his home state because he is very popular in his home state. But we're out on the national stage now, guys, in a party that is dominated by white nationalism. Donald Trump is a white nationalist. The white nationalists believe that through legislative means, you know, white people should dominate, you know, politics in America. That, that's, you know, that's why Trump had Miller and Bannon and those guys around him, because they believe that sort of 
thing. That's what Breitbart is, is a white nationalist publication. So we shouldn't be surprised to see this on a national level. We can see, uh, you know, exceptions to this, but only on the state level and, and the district level and stuff like that. But the, the Republican Party as presently constituted is not going to nominate a person of color uh, for the presidency. It's just not going to be done right now. The numbers are not there to do that. It's a sad state of affairs uh, to have to even report that, but all I'm reporting is what everybody knows to be the truth. Yes. Well, I was going to ask y'all something else. I have yet to see it, but I would be interested to see. Has anybody asked Herschel Walker about Ron DeSantis' comments? (laughs) I mean, I would think that he would fall and say much like Tim Scott did, much like, um, you know, uh, Byron Donald. This is just nonsense. Yeah, but um, – Since but, he was but, probably but, the highest elect, or but, highest but, official that didn't but, win. But he would say it in such a way that no one would have any idea what he was talking about. <laughs> Let, let's don't forget that. Yeah, maybe so. I just uh, – you know, I just think that that's – that, you know, given that, you know, people never seem to go off the stage completely, I would think it would be interesting if someone asked him uh, his thoughts on Ron DeSantis' comments. Now, one thing that I, I have heard speculated is that Tim Scott is running to be Donald Trump's vice president. I personally don't believe that. I think Donald Trump's going to look for two things. One, I think he is going to choose a woman. And two, I think he's going to choose a person that is willing to do everything that Mike Pence wouldn't do on January 6th. And I don't Mm -hmm. think Tim Scott fits either of those bills. But let's assume that these speculators are right. Tim Scott is on Donald Trump's shortlist. Catherine, do you think this impacts him positively or negatively, this whole attacking of – or this criticizing, rightfully so, of, of Ron DeSantis and getting into this issue? Oh, I think that Trump loves it if he's criticizing DeSantis. Cause mm-hmm. That's what Trump wants to do. So, mm. you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Or, yeah, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So, Yeah. Uh, Tim, any um, – the thoughts on this having some impact on um, the vice presidential well, yeah, let's, of Tim uh, Scott? Let, let's let's just forget color and all of that. Tim Scott is a very charismatic individual, very eloquent, very good on his feet. Do you think Donald Trump would have someone on the stage with him who could actually upstage him? I I, I don't good believe point. for a minute. He would pick Tim Scott. Like Mike Pence, for instance, a very low-keyed individual. Uh, that's the kind that Trump's going to get, except this time, you're right, David, he's going to get somebody that's willing to go there, you know, if you know yeah. what I mean. But, and that guy, that guy also is not Tim Scott. Tim Scott's not willing to go there. Yeah, and I'll say this. I do think that, you know, while I get what you're saying about Donald Trump not wanting to be upstaged, I do think he may pick more of a um, firebrand uh, because those are the kind of people that would do his bidding. 
Um, you know, I thought, you know, Carrie Lake might be an option, although I've heard he soured on her. Um, <laughs> you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert might be the kind of people. And, and they're, because they would do whatever he wanted, um, you know, but they would throw bombs and everything else. So I definitely think he's going to go away from the, you know, the Mike Pence mold on a lot of factors. And Tim Scott, while he's probably a little more exciting than Mike Pence, that's a pretty easy bar to pass. I do think he has integrity, and he just wouldn't completely ignore the votes of, you know, 80 million Americans. Um, right. So. Never. Yeah. Well, go ahead. Tim, you were. No, I, I just said never. <laughs> I agreed yeah. with you. Yeah. Well, um, we shall see, you know, how this all fleshes out. I and, mean, of course, as the polls go, it appears that um, – it appears that um, Donald Trump just keeps the commanding lead, is doing so well, um, and well, that's not well, changing. If, 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 if we can dwell on this a little minute, we're, don't you think DeSantis is about DOA? I, I think he is, and I think the rate he's burning through money um, is not helping. Let's go ahead and switch over now and welcome our guest into the show for the first time to the Kudzu line, welcome Early Ping. Welcome, Early. Hey, guys. How's it going? Good. Yeah. Yeah, good to have you on the show. Um, I was telling Tim and Catherine and our listeners at the top of the show that we met in Puerto Rico, and I was so impressed by your political knowledge, and you're also uh, associate colleague, student, however you want to say it, of one of our frequent guests, Charles Whelan. Um, but let's just start off and uh, let our listeners know just about your biography, and it can be some political and some not. Sure thing. So I was actually a student of Professor Wheatland back at uh, Dartmouth, uh, where I studied math and economics. Um, I did a stint at IBM as a data scientist and uh, consultant and then decided to pivot and go back into graduate school. I'm currently doing a joint program at the Harvard Kennedy School, pursuing a master's in public policy, as well as at the MIT uh, Sloan School of Management, uh, pursuing an MBA. And uh, David, we met on a hiking trip in Puerto Rico because I'm currently living in San Juan for the summer working for the National Park Service. They wanted to do a public service internship this summer, um, and that's how we met, and I'm really excited to, to speak with y'all about all things Maine, New Hampshire politics, um, and just really excited to be here. Yes. Uh, early, I have a feeling you're going to be the, I have the distinct honor from now on of being the only guest that we've booked through a, I guess it wasn't technically the rainforest, but a hike through <laughs> rainforest-like conditions. Um, but Catherine's going to ask you about Puerto Rico in a minute, but you've, you've uh, grew up in the New England states, and we've really never had somebody that really knows those areas intimately like you do. And you were born and raised in Maine, or well, raised in Maine at least, um, and so you know a lot about that. Just kind of tell us about Maine politics and, and how someone wins or loses in Maine. Sure. So um, I, I grew up in Maine. I, I lived in Maine since I was eight years old. Um, you know, probably went through uh, Maine public schools, my hometown, South Portland, Maine. 
And I think it's really important to understand kind of the main, like, zeitgeist, right? Like, main culture is really steep in self, this idea of, like, self-sufficiency. You know, you picture lobster men, potato farmers, loggers. It uh, has this sense of independence, um, I'd say, dating back to, like, the 1820s when we split off from Massachusetts. Um, I think it's really important to know that, like, Maine is deeply divided between kind of the, the uh, wealthier, more liberal, democratic cities along the coast and a more conservative, pro-Trump uh, rural area uh, in the interior, which um, comprises of the second district, which is, I think, I believe it's the largest district by land, like, east of the Mississippi. It's, like, four-fifths of the entire state. And so I think it's important to understand kind of maybe three main, no pun intended, um, points of main voters, which is independence, uh, keeping things local, and um, getting results. I think those three are, are the top priorities to keep in mind um, when thinking about main voters and how they vote. Yes. Um, now, uh I want to go backward a little bit because I think it is important understanding Maine is um, back in 2020, I felt the most surprising Senate result was that Susan Collins kind of handily beat Sarah Gideon, um, the Speaker of the House. When we talked, uh, you weren't that surprised. Kind of tell our listeners um, how you felt that race unfold in your home state. Yeah, so actually I um, I was living in Maine in 2020. I had moved back home during the pandemic um, to be closer with family. And I remember um, it was a very hotly contested election. Um, and I think I wasn't surprised that Susan Collins won. I think she ended up winning by like nine percentage points because it goes back to kind of my three points of, you know, these ideas of independence, keeping it local, and getting results. So in terms of independence, I think Susan Collins really um, kind of reiterated, like, time and time again, like, she's, like, a Mainer through and through. Like, she's, you know, born in Caribou, Maine, up in uh, Arista County. Her family are, like, I think they're, like, sixth-generation, like, lumbermen, like, a lumber business. Um, she has this extensive track record of public service in Maine. Um, and so, like, she kind of emphasized this point time and time again on the trail, whereas her opponent, the Democrat Susan, uh, Sarah Gideon, even though I think Sarah Gideon lived in Maine for, you know, over a decade, but she was born in Rhode Island. And I think there was this kind of separation between, you know, like a born and bred Mainer and somebody who kind of is an outsider. And I think she did a really good job of, you know, kind of keeping things local. There was a lot of national... Um, attention and Collins became a national target for Democrats after, you know, the Supreme Court, uh, you know, vote over Brett Kavanaugh, and Gideon was really outspoken as the main House Speaker, um, kind of really questioning whether Collins had changed to kind of appease, you know, Mitch McConnell, uh, to kind of appease like the Trump agenda, and. I think Collins really did a good job of trying to keep it local, like really focusing on, hey, like I brought results back to Maine. Every time you hear her speak, she talks about the millions she's brought back as a member of the Appropriations Committee, you know, like money for the lobster industry, money to revitalize like waterfronts. 
fire stations. She goes around to different towns and villages, you know, for ribbon cutting, bean supper, things like that. And she's gotten really good at like making sure that she brings federal money back to me. And so I think just kind of keeping it local, her like kind of status as like a born and bred Mainer and like her focus on results. Whereas I felt like Gideon really focused on like attacks, like there was just constantly attacks on the airwaves. Like you couldn't watch TV without just a barrage of negative campaign ads. It just felt like a race that had a lot of natural intention, but really Mainers cared about the local results and how it impacted their day-to-day lives. And I think that's what made the difference. Yes, and, and, and thinking into 2022 in our home state or, um, of Georgia, Raphael Warnock learned that lesson really well when he had this ad where they dumped peanuts on him, and he talked about um, working across the aisle with Tommy Tuberville um, to, to help with peanut farmers. And, and so it was keeping it local, nothing that was this exciting hot-button issue that polls well, but something that was just important to a certain area of Georgia. Well, let me ask you about another in- interesting individual in Maine, and that's the former governor and current U.S. senator and independent who caucuses with the Democrats, Angus King. Kind of describe how he wins being an independent. Yeah, so Angus King uh, has a long history of um, politics in Maine. So he was the former two-term governor from 1995 to 2003. Uh, even then, he was an independent. I mean, he's really known as like a socially liberal, fiscally conservative centrist. Um, for example, like he simultaneously supports gay rights, but then you know vetoes minimum wage increases. And that kind of works in Maine because Maine voters have this you know independence focus and keeping it local. And you know he's really able to um, be successful because he's built his career as a centrist, um, and he's really uh, kind of been successful in you know he caucuses with the Democrats but then he has friends across the aisle on the Republican side. I would say that, you know, even though he's consistently voted as one of the most popular statewide office holder, he really hasn't been successful recently in getting, you know, his Republican colleagues to back certain legislation, like, you know, securing election integrity, um, things like that. And so I, I question how far his centrist abilities go. But in terms of winning elections statewide in the um, kind of ha- being like a centrist uh, really kind of helps him uh, continue to win elections. Yes. Well, let me ask about one more individual, and you told us a little bit about the demographics and, and geography of the state. But Jared Golden, um, I think he's one of the few people in, in Congress now that's a Democrat that represents a district that Trump won at least one of the two times up in, I want to say it's Maine's second district, but it's the big land area district. How does Jared Golden uh, keep hanging on, and can he continue to do this in the foreseeable future, in your opinion? Yeah, Jared Golden is interesting. There, I don't think there is a single Democrat in the House that votes against Joe Biden as much as Jared Golden does. Um, I think, you know, I, I did a little bit of reading to, to make sure I got this right, but, you know, he voted against the American Rescue Plan, that $1.9 trillion pandemic relief bill, but then he voted for the Inflation Reduction Act. He votes against 
the Democrats' police reform debate, but then he votes for um, with House Republicans to overturn like the student loan debt cancellation. And he's able to do this because he kind of is, is again, is a centrist. Um, he, he knows who his constituents are. They're, you know, residents of a very rural part of Maine. They're largely conservative. They're older. Um, and he kind of, you know, positions himself to kind of listen to their needs, and he's not afraid to vote against the National Party. But then he will kind of vote for bills which will benefit his constituents. He will actually he will go chase earmarks um, to bring money back to Maine. Um, he's part of I think the I believe it's called the Blue Dog Coalition. It's like the centrist Democrats uh, in the in the House. So he brings this kind of credibility of being um, a centrist who's willing to go against his own party to deliver for his constituents. And I think that's what puts him in a position to keep winning elections. And I think the important part to make um, that I'll add on is that he's won two of his races through ranked choice voting. And that has significantly um, changed how the second district outcomes are um, ended up, you know, back in 2018 and 2022, ranked choice voting came into play and he was able to win those races. And that's also an important factor uh, for, for Representative Golden. Yes. Well, I'm going to keep it in New England, and I'm going to pass it to Tim, who's going to ask, I know, a lot of questions about New Hampshire. And then Catherine, I know, is going to focus some on Puerto Rico. And then um, I may ask about a little something else that comes back around to me, but I'm going to pass it to Tim. All right. Uh, good evening, Ms. Pink. Thank you for being with us tonight. Uh, Thank now, you, Joe Biden. Joe Biden won New Hampshire by about seven percentage points in 2020. But in 2016, Donald Trump only lost there to Hillary Clinton by like 3,000 votes. Now, that being said, as you know, the Democratic Party has pushed for the state of South Carolina to replace New Hampshire in the nation primary. I believe that this will hurt the Democrats in the presidential election in 2024. Am I right about that? I think it depends on what you think, well, how you define hurt. Um, because I guess I understand why that the uh, DNC wants to move South Carolina ahead of the pack as the first primary um, and I, I, I think on paper I agree. You know, like I think South Carolina voters are a better reflection of like Democratic um, voters across the country in terms of diversity and their more moderate stance. Um, I think, you know, maybe it's a self-interested motive because Biden won in South Carolina after losing in New Hampshire and Iowa. So it could be, you know, a personal bump for him to have South Carolina go first. But I'm not exactly confident that well, I would say this would hurt him in the long run. I know there's a chance that, you know, he might not end up on the New Hampshire ballot uh, because they might go against kind of this official designation. But in the long run, I, I think, you know, an incumbent does still have staying power, you know, even with this kind of uh, date dance that the DNC has set up. Yeah, but we're, we're, we're talking about a state that takes their politics 
pretty seriously. They mm-hmm. they take a lot of pride in the fact that they are the first in the nation primary. I mean, their state motto is "Live Free or Die," and, yeah. and I would think that that as as you know, relatively close as you know, some recent presidential elections have been up there. That that it mm-hmm. might hurt uh, the national ticket somewhat. Uh, but but, yeah, but that no, that was. Yeah, I think it could hurt, um, and it you know could theoretically damage his damage his image in the state, and, and could potentially even determine electoral college results. But I just think that that scenario seems pretty remote. I once was a New Hampshire voter uh, when I was an undergrad, and I remember mm-hmm. I remember I, I think I posted a picture of me voting in the 2016 Democratic primary. And I think I said mm-hmm. that, you know, Iowa picks corn, but New Hampshire picks president. That was wrong that year. I think Bernie <laughs> won the primary. Um, so, you know, uh, New Hampshire is not the best in terms of picking candidates per se. Um, and so I, I share your, your concern, but I don't think I'm as concerned that this, um, the situation with like putting South Carolina first and then New Hampshire is trying to jump the gun. Um, okay. It causes drama, but I, I don't. I don't think I'm as worried uh, about kind of the long run implications. Okay. Well, now I want to turn to uh, one of their most famous citizens. Governor Sununu is one of two governors in modern history that have served more than three terms. You know, governors in New Hampshire can serve unlimited terms as long as they get elected. And he is extremely popular there. All of a sudden, he announces that he's not going to run again, and nobody is really sure of what he's going to do next. What is going on with Governor Sununu, a guy who in his late 40s suddenly is stepping away when, when he's as popular as he is? Uh, wow. I mean, I wish I knew. Maybe if I had a, uh, a time machine, I, I could tell you. I, I think there is a possibility he's considering a presidential run, um, sending a little bit of a mixed signal. You know, he's at the height of his power in New Hampshire, um, mm-hmm. and, but he has said he won't run in 2024. So, mm-hmm. you know, there is a crowded field uh, in the Republican side, um, and you know, I, I don't, I can't put my finger around what his thought process is. I don't know. He might decide to come to the Kennedy School as a fellow. You know, as mm-hmm. <laughs> most politicians <laughs> leaving office yep. considered to do. Um, but I, I think you know, this is not without precedent. I feel that you know, someone. I remember Maine Senator Olympia Snow left office. Um, I think she maybe left for slightly different reasons over, like, polarization, but she was also a very powerful member of the Senate at mm-hmm. that time, and that actually yes, paved the way for Angus King to come into power. So I guess uh-huh. my answer to your question is a non-answer. Is I, I guess I don't know. I, I think there could be a presidential campaign brewing, but uh, maybe he's considering his chances against Trump. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh-huh. So explain to our listeners – that like, like Democrats win, you know, New Hampshire's four electoral votes in practically every election. I think Georgia, Bush 43, is, is the only one that's broke through there in a long time. 
But right now, the Republicans control the entire state government of New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. So explain a voter <laughs> to me uh, that, that votes for an entire Republican ticket and turns around and votes for Joe Biden. What are the mm-hmm. voters of New Hampshire like? You know, I think New Hampshire voters are very similar to Maine voters. And I uh-huh. just happen to have been a voter of both states. And I think it goes back to my my previous theory that it comes down to kind of these three key points of, you know, they're looking for independence from their politicians, mm-hmm. um, keeping it local, you know, not mm-hmm. necessarily falling into the into kind of the frenzy of national politics. And then they look for folks who get things done. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, that theory applies to New Hampshire as well. They're neighboring states. Um, and I think they're consider- the, the voter base is very similar in that regard. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's my theory for, for why. I mean, in Maine, you know, the state uh, House and Senate are all democratically controlled. And, but, you know, you still have Susan Collins winning election after election. And so I think voters are maybe not as susceptible to national politics as much as like they really keep it local and kind of consider folks who will or will not bring back benefits to their state. Um, and I think that that applies to New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. Um, I would like to thank you for explaining all all of this stuff to me, and I'm going to pass it over to Catherine. Catherine? <coughs> Excuse me. Thank you for being on the show tonight. It's great to talk with you. Very Catherine. insight into Maine and New Hampshire. That's always uh, interesting. I wanted to just ask you a little bit about Puerto Rico. <coughs> Excuse me. We uh, so rarely talk about it that I just want, wanted to see you. How long have you been? Uh, you're on an internship there. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So and, and how long uh, have you? Yeah, I, I've been, been there? in Puerto Rico Sorry. since the first week of June. I'm on a 10-week internship um, based out of San Juan, which is the capital. Um, I'm working for the National Park Service um, on a, a project uh, analyzing kind of different risk scenarios and proposing strategies to help um, move the San Juan National Historic Site into kind of a more efficient operating model. Um, oh, well, and I knew that's really, really interesting. <laughs> oh, so, and yeah, so I, if, I, it is a unique opportunity. Um, I knew that kind of coming into graduate school, I, I wanted to spend the summer in public service working at some level of government. Um, and I've always, I mean, grew up in Maine. I've always been in the outdoors. Um, after going to school at Dartmouth, I, I really kind of embraced um, kind of this love for the outdoors and the National Park Service. Um, you know, I've never worked at a place I, I feel that I really, truly believed in the mission and the model. Um, and so it really is a dream come true this summer to, to be able to work for MPS um, and, and kind of really dig deep into the operations of a national park site. Well, that, that's fascinating. I'm also a big fan of the national parks. I think anybody who's had the opportunity to visit more than a couple of them ends up being a fan. Um, mm-hmm. Well, I know you're doing an internship and you're probably very busy with that, but what's your, what have been some of the surprises for you about Puerto Rico? I've never been there and I, I'm just, 
I don't really know very much about it. Like, what are the pe- what are the people like? Uh, what are the politics like? Is it is it very political, or is it uh, you know sort of uh, not that you know not that much interest in politics, or can, have you even been able to tell any of that in your short time there? Um, so I, obviously, yes, I have been really busy with internship, but I have tried to go out and explore, um, the island. I didn't want to kind of leave any part of it unexplored. Um, so that's how I met, met David, um, on a hike. And I think, um, there's an interesting kind of dynamic here, which is, you know, Puerto Rico is a U.S. territory, it's not a state, and there are certain kind of hurdles that, you know, territories go through that state, you know, there's, there's this kind of representation issue um, yeah. where, you know, they have a representation in Congress, but it, it's non-voting. And um, obviously the Puerto Rico is still recovering um, economically and, and, and in an infrastructure sense from the hurricanes um, back in 2017. Uh, and I find that there is this dependence on the U.S for, you know, economic reasons, I think the U.S. provides 80% of Puerto Ricans' food, so there's this dependence on um, the U.S., but then there's also this independence, you know, the sense that Puerto Rico has its own culture, has its own identity um, as a country, and it's, it's been interesting kind of to witness that, and, and it is political here. I, I, you know, I live about a five, ten-minute walk from the Capitol building, um, the governor's mansion is right in Old San Juan, which is like a 10-minute walk from where I live. Um, and from what I heard, you know, there's, there have been, like, Old San Juan, um, which is like the historical neighborhood of San Juan, uh, where the, um, the National Park site is located, is actually the site of a lot of protests um, against the governor. And I think... Uh, you know, so it is political here, mostly because I think folks are very frustrated um, with their Puerto Rican representation, especially at the, the governor level. Um, and that's kind of the sense that I got speaking with, with folks um, on the ground. But it's, it's been an interesting experience. I'm, I'm you know, I'm learning my Spanish and trying to improve there. Um, but, I've, <laughs> but it's been really kind of like talking with, um, you know, park employees trying to get their sense of, you know, how they um, live and work here. And I, I get this general sense that, you know, Puerto Ricans are very resilient people, hardworking, but love, you know, having their fun, their music, dancing salsa on the streets, like uh, pina coladas is the national drink. And so it's kind of this whole <laughs> um, mentality that I find to be very exciting. Um, and it's been such a blast living here and kind of really engrossing myself into into this culture. Um, and I highly recommend you visit, Catherine, if you get the chance. Um, the pina coladas cannot be missed. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, 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 it's great to hear that they're resilient because uh, when you look at the, you know, the history, especially the recent history with the hurricanes and, and you know, the way the, the post-hurricane treatment that they got and the lack of um, infrastructure repair and all that it's good that they're resilient because boy I don't know if I could take it it's been really hard for them and I, I, I'm i glad they find some 
uh, I'm glad they drink plenty of pina coladas and dance in the street <laughs> to get over it or at least get through it. Well, that yeah, was, was really I, very know, interesting. It is very interesting. And, um, and I, I do want to emphasize that, you know, people are political. I, I, I don't know um, kind of more of the details. I, I know that I've heard a lot about, you know, Old San Juan being like an epicenter of protest. I know there were big, pro, like large protests back in like 2020 before uh, the pandemic really started demanding the, the resignation of their then governor. There were continued protests uh, in the years after to demand the resignation of, you know, the next governor. And so I think um, the Puerto Rican people, while resilient, they're also outspoken about their leadership. And, and I, but I sometimes question kind of, you know, why they continue to elect folks into office that, you know, in subsequent months, there's protests to request their resignation. I haven't put my finger exactly on why that is, um, but I, I know that from my experience talking with folks as well as just reading online, um, you know, Osan Juan is definitely the place where protests happen. Um, and I think there was a <laughs> protest last weekend about, like, a politician as well. So, so yeah, it is an interesting political environment. Um, and, you know, I want to steer clear of saying too much just because I'm still, you know, a federal employee currently. I understand. Um, oh, I completely understand it, that. It is definitely an interesting dynamic, you know, kind of the the relationship between the, you know, the federalists, you know, the federal government with the city of San Juan as well as the um, the government of Puerto Rico. Well, thank you very much for sharing that. I'm going to pass it back to David. Thank you. Yes, before I, so. my last uh, topic, um, I want to echo something else about visiting uh, San Juan, old San Juan in particular. Where early works, those two historic sites have the most incredible breezes I have ever felt when you go on the top levels. They rival air conditioning. And we're talking about July is when I visited these. So um, it, it's actually a nice place to get cool on a hot summer day, um, which is, you know, unexpected in the Caribbean. Well, um, Early, one more topic I want to talk to you about is um, because you've been somebody that's been to such uh, to two different Ivy League colleges. Because this conversation relies around that, you're a person of color, and this conversation relies, uh, you know, revolves around that. Uh, in the past few months, the Supreme Court came out with a decision banning affirmative action in um, college admission decisions. Being someone that's uh, you know gotten accepted to high-level colleges and a person of color. What are your thoughts on that ruling? Yeah. Um, I I remember when the decision um, happened, and, and I think I was just disappointed. I, I knew it was um, kind of expected, the result. And I think it could have – I mean, it, it likely will have a detrimental impact on – you know, enrollment of black, Hispanic, indigenous students. Um, I think it could also be a slippery slope with other race-based policies. I know, like, I think in Kentucky, they're looking at not only banning race-based emissions, but also potentially scholarships reserved for minority students. Uh, It could have implications potentially on gender-based policies. So I'm really concerned, and I'm deeply disappointed and really sad. It was a sad day for the country. Um, I think it's really important to remember that affirmative action 
you know, it's meant to offer an opportunity for underrepresented minorities to kind of, you know, walk into rooms that otherwise would not have been available to, to kind of, you know, given be offered opportunities that, you know, allow these students to bring value, their lived experiences and their perspectives when it otherwise wouldn't have been there. Um, and I think kind of this decision was a mistake. And I think the onus now is on colleges and universities to um, kind of reconsider what their admissions policies are and look into other ways that they can increase diversity uh, in their um, undergraduate classes to kind of overcome this, this decision. Uh, I, I do have some thoughts on kind of other forms of affirmative action that still do exist, which mainly is, um, you know, favoring the rich and super rich. I'm thinking about like legacy admissions, like recruiter athletes who, you know, are more likely to be white and wealthy, um, students from private and prep schools who are more likely to be white and wealthy. Um, you know, there's, there's a new paper out uh, last week by Harvard professors Ross Chetty and David Deming and Brown professor John Freeman. They looked at highly selective uh, private colleges in America and found that, you know, affirmative action still very much exists for the rich and the super rich. And I think that requires some further discussion um, and policy because, you know, it's about a level playing field and currently you know, with the Supreme Court decision, the play bill is definitely not level, and I was extremely disappointed, and we should all be extremely disappointed as Americans that this decision um, by the Supreme Court uh, to ban affirmative action occurred. Yes. Well, Arlie, thank you so much for sharing such a diverse range of topics, from Supreme Court decisions to New England politics to Puerto Rican uh, politics and living situation. Uh, usually we have our let our guests share their website or whatever, but you probably won't necessarily have that going on. If there is anything you'd like to share, though, now's your time uh, as we close out the interview. I mean, I think the biggest the, the thing that comes to mind is, you know, go out there, vote. Um, kind of, you know, that's kind of what's going to make things better, hopefully. And i like to thank the three of you for having me on and continuing the work that you do on this podcast to kind of talk about these really important issues. Um, and, yeah, I think, I think that's, that's the top thing that I have in my mind is go out and vote. Yes. Well, we've enjoyed having you on. And given the, um, you know, political dynamics of both Maine and New Hampshire, we may have to call on you again. <laughs> as issues arise in those states. I would love to come on if, if you would have me back. I hope I provided, you know, a little bit of insight into my beloved home state of Maine. And also, you know, I lived in New Hampshire for five years, so I love New Hampshire as well. Um, but thank you and Tim and Catherine for having me on. It's um, been a fun time. Thank All you. Right thank now. you so much. <clears throat> thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. That was Bye-bye, Early Ping, um, who is currently studying at Harvard, I guess doing the internship, obviously, in Puerto Rico. What a what a great gig uh, for the summer, uh, a tropical environment with all, such history. 
because I don't think people realize how old San Juan is. It's it's like 500 years old. It's amazing. But we just have a few minutes to discuss something else. We had a topic uh, ready to go that has so many facets that could have taken up 20 minutes easy. So we probably can just get to a piece of that. Um, and, and we're, you know, talking about President Biden and, and uh, his electability and what issues could could impact him, obviously the Republicans – want to focus a lot on, or at least the talking heads that, that have to produce a lot of cable media, um, they want to talk about Hunter Biden, his laptop, and his scandals. So let's just take that one little piece. Catherine, do you feel that the Hunter Biden issues are really going to resonate with voters in any substantial way? Not voters that would vote for Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, and then there's several facets of it. I mean, could it impact turnout? Could there be a voter that would vote for the Republican and then might be go, well, I don't know if I'll vote. Oh, I'm so mad about Hunter Biden that that's actually a turnout factor. Do you think that could be a possibility? I don't possibility? think so. No. Yeah. I don't no. think so. I, I mean, I think, I think that your average American, um, whatever that might look like, isn't paying any attention to any of that stuff. It's it's the, you know, right-wing uh, reactionary people that are talking about it, and everybody else is, you know, too busy on Zoom or, you know, taking their kids to camp or whatever uh, to be worried about it. Yeah, Tim, um, I'm going to ask you kind of a specific question off of this. I saw something about a week ago, and they said the one issue related to Hunter Biden that this person thought could impact um, things was the fact that, you know, Joe Biden and Joe Biden do have another grandchild, lives in Arkansas, and apparently the mother of that child wants to kind of be pretty private about it all. And so not much had been said. And, And somebody speculated, you know, like, if he looks like he just has nothing to do with his grandchild, that could be a problem. And then, of course, this past week, a statement was released explaining more about it and then told his grandchild's name and said, you know, we love her because she's our grandchild. We want to protect the privacy, but we want to do everything we can to, to be good grandparents. And I thought that may take that issue away. What are your thoughts on that as a potential Hunter Biden-related issue that could be a problem? And then that statement, how much did that help or I can't imagine it hurt but how much did it help well that statement was for national media consumption mainly who who was attempting I guess to make to make a story of it driven by you know the president's detractors um, in the right wing uh, blogosphere or whatever but the, the average person I don't think really knows anything about something like that and uh, people still want to see, I believe, the average person wants to see uh, presidents' families off the table when it comes to this stuff. That's that's one reason I don't even think the Hunter Biden thing is is um, catching on. I mean, look, look at this, David. On one side, you've got, you know, a, a former president <laughs> facing several dozen charges already and the other side says but what about hunter biden Uh, like that's gonna be an even 
thing. <laughs> and, you know, so far, so far, it just, uh, I, nothing associated with Hunter Biden has touched the president because there's not one shred of evidence that connects the president to anything wrong that Hunter Biden uh, has done. So, so far, no effect. Yeah, I, I don't think it. it's going to have. Uh, it's going to have almost no effect. Maybe it gets a few little donors that are hardcore to give a, a few more dollars, um, but but not in any big way. Uh, and, and I think this is the conundrum. This this story feeds content for Fox and Newsmax and um, AON, and so therefore they need to keep talking about it because it just keeps on giving them minutes and hours and hours to put programming on but it doesn't help the republicans so therefore um that's kind of the rub there where republican candidates need to move on to something else whereas um the the base is going to see all this programming we know these news channels drive the agenda for the republican party very much these days so it's going to be interesting to see how that fleshes it out because i'm sure the pollsters and the advisors for these Republican candidates know that it's not a winning issue, but then the producers of those news channels know it is for them. Well, I want to thank again Early Ping for coming on the show. Next week we're going to have Dr. Rachel Bittenkoffer come on the show again um, and discuss all kind of um, issues. You know, she can talk across the political spectrum, across the country with us, and we're, she's going to be our guest next week on the show. So until then, it's been the Kudzu Vine. Good night, guys.